Hey, I'm Justin. And I'm Vivian. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Le Fonds de Recherche du Québec and powered by Neuro, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students and by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself, who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about nutrition and mental health. We're with Dr. Bonnie J. Kaplan, a research psychologist and semi-retired professor in the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine. For many years, she studied the role of nutrition and mental illness and brain development. Her passion is to teach people how our diet influences our brain and mental health. She just released a new book with Dr. Julia Rockledge called The Better Brain, available on the website thebetterbrainbook.com. And it talks about how we can overcome anxiety, combat depression, and reduce ADHD with nutrition. Mm-hmm. And this episode was a very different perspective from the ones we've heard so far. We've talked a lot about biology and the more therapeutic or psychosocial aspect, but we haven't talked yet about nutrition. So I think Dr. Kaplan definitely brings that aspect for the more holistic version of what mental right. health is. And she really brings this this new perspective on you know we have to understand how what we eat can influence our brain directly you know so it's it's pretty interesting as graduate students to you know reduce our intake of all that ultra processed foods and you know have a proactive approach to try to find time to yeah. cook and prepare our, our meals because there's a direct influence on on how our brain works right So for those of you who are thinking of getting a donut right now, think (laughs) twice because this episode is for you. Hi, Dr. Kaplan. How are you? Hello uh, to both of you. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on our show tonight. So today we're really going to have a, a nice, frank conversation about your work, about your book and about mental health and nutrition. And so it's, it's like we're going to have a coffee at a coffee shop. It's really relaxed, no pressure. We're just going to have a nice conversation. Our audiences are, are for graduate students. So we're talking to graduate students. So uh, our first question is always, Vivian, you can take it. Okay, sure. So we like to ask all our guests uh, to put yourself back into the, the time and headspace when you were a grad student. So you did your PhD at the University of Chicago. And um, I just wanted to to ask you on a Friday evening, if you could think back to that time way back when, um, what were you thinking about? What were you uh, interested in? What were you doing on a Friday evening? Okay, first of all, may I just correct you because you've got my universities reversed. University of Chicago was my undergraduate degree, and I did my master's and PhD at Brandeis University in Boston. So anyway, I'll, I'll just say what I was thinking on any night when I was a graduate student, not just a Friday night, um, and it has continued to this day. I, I, don't, I don't want to discourage your graduate students, but I'm semi-retired, and it's the same now. I don't know why, but I work seven days a week. Not all day every day anymore, but evenings too. I'm thinking about what I can do to further back then, further my own research to um, what should I change? What should I be doing? Um, Yes, I had a social life and I had a husband and a family too. It's possible to do all that. But I must say my mind is very occupied with my research. Mm, Yeah, what was your research on in your PhD? Well, back then, I've always been uh, trained in physiological psychology. I don't know. I hope some of your listeners are going to be clinical psychologists because I think that my research ultimately has a very strong message for them. But I was very physiologically oriented and always interested in the biochemical basis of human and animal behavior. And so when I was a graduate student, I was doing a lot of electrophysiology work, uh, uh, EEG research, Um, In my postdoctoral training at Yale, I was doing evoke potentials and depth recordings and cellular recordings. That was mostly in animals, of course. Um, And so a lot of the time I was, if you're doing that kind of work, a lot of the time 
uh, unfortunately, you're really focused on methodology, you know, how to make electrodes and, and, and do better recordings, etc. Uh, I wasn't too sorry to leave that behind me and to do more clinically-based research when I moved to Calgary. So you started your clinical work in Calgary? Clinical research work, yeah. Clinical research work. So wh- why yeah. the change? Why did you decide to, to go into the clinical field? Oh, into the clinical research. Um, so, you know, I've always said that I made very few decisions in my career except to walk through an open door. And doors opened for me along the way. And I took advantage of the opportunities that were in front of me. And I know sometimes now, especially, my gosh, talking during the pandemic to people, there are so many other parameters. Um, But I'm just telling you how fortunate I was. And I was um, feeling that my career, I was on the research faculty at Yale University Medical School, and I didn't feel that I had a lot of potential for advancement. Um, A PhD in an MD world is always a little disadvantaged. And um, female and young at an old Ivy League school, um, need I say more? (laughs) And so I... Uh, heard about the position in a hospital in Calgary because initially it was not so much university-based, it was Alberta Children's Hospital, and thought, well, that sounded like I could stop doing animal research, which I had not enjoyed a lot, um, and then move into more clinically-based research. So the door opened, and as I say, I walked through we look back at our lives and say, wow, what, what if I hadn't walked through that door or that door or that door? We'll never know, but that's how it happened for me. So on our podcast, uh, we've had guests talk about the biology of, of mental health and illness, as well as more of the therapeutic side, so the psychological uh, aspect of it. But you're our first guest to talk about nutrition, and so we're really excited to have you kind of bring that that perspective and actually have your book right here, The Better Brain, that was released yesterday. Congratulations on that. Thank um, you. And so, you know, I just have um, a mind brimming with questions, and maybe we'll start off with... Um, just, just a general question on, um, you know, in, in your first chapter, you talked about how our current solution of just using, uh, just targeting certain receptors or just using psych, psych meds are not effective and how they're not effective, especially over time. So long-term, um, you know, they may treat depression for a short time, but, but um, that's not going to be a good long-term solution. So if, could you talk a bit about uh, your, your research or the research around psych meds? Okay. I, I, uh, just for your listeners' sake, it's very important because I'm sure that some of our listeners are taking psychiatric meds. Uh, We are not quite that black and white, so I'd like to just soften the message a little bit, if I may. Um, I mean, Vivian, I know that when you ask a question, it's a capsule summary, but what we were saying is that they've been disappointing. Um, The reality is that uh, the psychopharmacology revolution, which I lived through, I remember so clearly when Schildkraut and Ketty came out with their book on the the, uh, catecholamine hypothesis of mental illness, Wow, I just thought that was so amazing. And that that led to all the research and drug development in the 70s and 80s. And it just seemed like we had the answers. And now we have hundreds of times the the, uh, prevalence rate of mental disorders. And we have people reporting extreme withdrawal symptoms from trying to decrease or go off of certain medications. And we also have... Data, I mean, Irving Kirsch's research showing that in the vast majority of the studies, the antidepressant benefit over placebo amounted to, I think, 2.5 or 3 points on a scale. That's not a resolution of symptoms. Um, It just, it doesn't mean there is no place for drugs. We make that very clear, especially in Chapter 12, the end of our book, that in our vision of a better tomorrow. There is a place for medication. And the two places that that we mention are, first of all, in acute crises. I mean, when someone is hit by uh, uh, something really horrible in their lives, a sudden loss of a spouse or something, they may need to take 
some kind of psychiatric medication for a few weeks. But there's no research to suggest that they benefit from staying on it. And when you the other situation where psychiatric meds really seem to have a, a wonderful place is as a supplement. In fact, as we talk further, I'll just kind of give you a preliminary view of my terminology. I try very hard not to refer to minerals and vitamins as supplements. Sometimes I do it because that's how we all use the word, right? But in my vision of a better tomorrow, um, nutritional changes, dietary changes, and nutrients sometimes in pill form will be used before anything else. And so medication would be a potential supplement. And we know that people who are taking, who are really well nourished and are taking nutrients in pill form perhaps, or at least improving their diets, they need less psychiatric medication. They, a small amount, in, in other words, that's a good news story. People are using nutrition to decrease their, um, their medication load, if you will. So I am not anti-medication, but they have, you know, I've witnessed the disappointment of the psychopharmacology revolution, so-called. <laughs> and and what, what got you interested in nutrition in the first place? I don't ever know how to answer that question because my very first article was published in Psych Bulletin, which many of your listeners will know is a very, very high-status psychology journal from the APA, 1972, Malnutrition and Mental Deficiency. I was interested in what nutrition did for brain cell development and growth, and um, I actually considered doing my postdoctoral research in that and chose instead to go to neurophysiology for a few years. Uh, but then I kept coming back to nutrition. And I don't know where that interest came from. It just seemed to me to be overlooked. You know, like what I, I swear there's a whole generation. Now I'm going to, this is a little digression if you don't mind, but I think there's a whole generation of people out there who have no clue that our cells are built with nutrients and they function only if we give them nutrients. I think they think their cells live on air. Yeah. I don't know, but it's always intrigued me. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about your message as I was reading the book is that you point to there being sort of a division, like either we do, you know, the pharmacology medication route or um, nutrition. That's what people think, but really that there needs to be more of an integration, right? Because it's, it's both, as you're saying, it's both medication as well as nutrition. And nutrition is an area that maybe has been overlooked. Um, and, and, Sometimes I find that there can be a bit of a stigma. You know, people think, oh, that's not really scientifically based or whatever. But your book is full of scientific studies um, that point to nutrition being uh, very important. And um, you, you cite something as uh, you cite nutrition as as there being no one magic bullet solution. Right. And I think sometimes maybe nutrition gets a bad rap because we do these clinical trials on one um, nutrition and, and then conflicting um studies maybe come out and people get a, a, a skewed view of, of really the scientific backing of, of nutrition. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, the scientific basis of nutrition. So, you know, what, where is the scientific uh, studies right now regarding nutrition? And we've kind of gone back and forth, for example, is fat good or fat bad and, you know, things like that. Um, but, but how do you see science, the science of nutrition um, coming into play uh, right now? That's a very, very big question. So I'll, I'll focus on, on two of the things that you, you mentioned, if, if that's okay, Vivian. Um, the first is this uh, kind of neglect of nutrients. You hear people say something like, oh, it's just vitamins or, you know, just <laughs> nutrients or something. And um, the word just, every time I hear that, I think, just? What are you talking about? That's that's the most fundamental, foundational aspect of who we are, is oxygen and nutrition and, and water. I mean, that's what makes us who we are. Of course, there are all the psychosocial issues we're not talking about today, but as someone trained in psychology, I do need to acknowledge that, yes, we are a product of our genes, of our environment, of our, of our family function or dysfunction, of the events that happen in our lives, etc., but at, at its base, at its foundation, 
we are who we are uh, in part because of minerals and vitamins. And it's not just minerals and vitamins. It's amazing minerals, uh, minerals and vitamins. That's what we should be saying. So we have to quit disparaging nutrients. Now, the single nutrient research has contributed to disparaging the uh, uh, ability of nutrients to influence us. So I need to give you a little terminology thing real quickly here. Everybody knows what the macronutrients are, and we don't usually call them macronutrients, but that's uh, the actual term. And that is the stuff that you see on a lot of packages, the fats, um, excuse me, the carbohydrates, uh, which include sugars, um, and you know the protein, etc. Those are the big categories of large things that we are eating, and we, of course, need to eat all of those every day. And I don't want to get into a discussion about this fat or that fat, etc. That's that's not. We don't have time to do that here. But what people are less aware of, I think, is the term micronutrients. Yeah. The micronutrients, and there's no universal rule on how to use these terms, which makes it more complicated. But as we say in the book, we are going to use the term micronutrients to refer mostly to vitamins and minerals. And also essential fatty acids like omega-3s kind of are a large micronutrient, but we're mostly focusing on minerals and vitamins. When you look at the research, and this is the second point you were making, Vivian, when you look at the scientific research uh, as we did, actually, also published in Psych Bullet in 2007, though, jumping forward about 30 years, we published a review called Vitamins, Minerals, and Mood. Um, and we looked at all the clinical studies going back to the earliest that we could find, which was 1929, where scientists took nutrition and tried to alter mental disorders. And every single one of them until about the year 2000 was on a single nutrient. And so when you looked at the literature, it was kind of interesting. You'd see there are um, a few of the studies seem to uh, say, you know, if you give them a little bit of zinc, they seem to get better. And if another few said, well, if you give them a little calcium, they seem to get better. And another few, give them some folate, they seem to get better. But all of them were small, modest improvements. What changed around the year 2000 was the thought that And this mostly came from some people who were outside of the scientific world, uh, but here in Alberta, they said, well, why are we giving the brain just one nutrient at a time? Doesn't our brain need a lot of nutrients all together in balance? Well, of course, that's the case. I mean, that's why farm animals are given a broad spectrum of nutrients. That's why if you're raising racehorses, they're given a broad spectrum of micronutrients um, people who have difficulty with, say, a parrot who is picking its feathers, they're often given a multi-nutrient formula. Why can't we look at that in humans? And the answer is this bias in the scientific world, and it's still there, which will only fund research if you study one independent variable at a time, and they don't accept multiple nutrients very often as being a single independent variable. It's very challenging for those of us doing that work. So along came this idea of giving the brain all the nutrients it needs. And by the way, if you want to get an idea of what a broad spectrum is, what we need are roughly 15 vitamins and 15 minerals, and we need them every single minute of every day. And that's when the breakthroughs started to happen, okay? So that's the story of how there was this real shift around 2000, and now the research has really exploded. Unfortunately, there are still people, there's one Australian study that they put it right in their tuttle, title. They said, more is not merrier, and they did a nutritional study. Well, what did they give? Uh, they were giving, I, I think it was five or six nutrients. It was what I call a favorite few Everybody kind of has their favorite ones. They, maybe it's the nutrients that they understand the best. They say, oh, we know what this one does, this one does, this one does. Well, Mother Nature is smarter than that. Mother Nature knows that our brain needs all of them, especially for the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And so that's what we've been studying, both Julia, <clears throat> Julia and I. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. And how do we know which, which nutrients or micronutrients 
are the are the ones to study, right? There's so many out there. You know, when I get this asked this question, I have two competing forces that I have to struggle with. One is I'm an academic snob, and I re- I really believe in the importance of uh, research and evidence base. Uh, and I know that the vast majority of the evidence base on broad spectrum micronutrients comes from two formulas developed here in Alberta. But the other side of me is um, whenever I mention product names or even give websites to those two products, <clears throat> then I get accused of, of taking money from them. So I need to tell your graduate students out there something really important. When I was a graduate student, um, it was considered unethical for scientists to take any money from any company anytime. No physician was being funded by drug companies, at least in mental health, um, that I had ever heard of. And it was, con- it was just a conflict of interest. It, it was just not accepted. Along came the psychopharmacology revolution and the FDA more stringent requirements and everything. And the pharmaceutical companies wanting to make bill- billions of dollars and they started paying physicians in medical schools and uh, to do their research. They funded them. They even funded people to put their names on papers um, of studies that they didn't do. And I know that because I was approached for that. Um, and it, cha- it shifted the whole, I mean, it's just the whole different ethos now. It's just mind-blowing. So in around 2000, when I started studying one of the Alberta formulas when it was first developed, I said, I don't care if I have to pay for my studies out of my own pocket, um, and, with, and I've been fortunate I haven't had to do that. I will look for private donations. I'll look for money everywhere, but I will not ever accept money from a, a company making a nutrient formula that I'm studying. And all the other people coming after me, including Julia Rucklidge, my co-author, and all the other people studying the broad-spectrum formulas have agreed that that's an important principle. And so none of us will even let these companies buy us a a cup of coffee or a ballpoint pen. And so we have stayed many arm's lengths away from them, which means that we're in a real bind, though, when people want us to name the company because they're convinced that we work for them. So all I can say is that in Chapter 11 of our book, we list all of the multi-ingredient, not necessarily just broad spectrum, but multi-ingredient formulas for which there is scientific evidence. And uh, we, the B-complex are, you know, one category there. And, and including the, the really broad spectrum formulas. And we give the websites and we give the data. And people can make their own decisions. Right. And I think, too, you have some really good scientific studies on ADHD and autism and bipolar, if I'm not wrong, about multinutrient supplements. So if people want, they can That's read right. about that, and too. The, actually, the amount of data on the children and adults with ADHD is enough for FDA approval if anybody was looking for it. But, you know, um, nobody wants that because it's natural health products. It's not medication. So it's very strong evidence, and there's a new replication on ADHD in children, which is uh, almost in press, <laughs> and that's a multinational study, multi-center. Very cool. So, um, Bonnie, you mentioned B, B vitamins, so I want to kind of drill down into that a little bit. Um, so you, you talked in the book about resilience and how in the pandemic uh, resilience is this really important skill that we need to have, you know, to adapt to to a changing world. And um, you talk about B vitamins and, and the relationship there. Could, could you talk a bit more about, about what we know uh, in terms of B vitamins and resilience? I'm really glad you asked that question, Vivian, because uh, we're in a pandemic and everybody is stressed. So... I can give you, a, you know, I tend to give long answers, so I'm going to try great. to make this one short, but it, it is a very interesting story. Um, the, if you're looking at mental disorders, the only um, formulas that are really have a lot of replicated data, like 35 studies um, in peer-reviewed scientific and medical journals, are the broad-spectrum formulas that I mentioned. But if you're looking at the general population, um, people who do not necessarily have a mental disorder, but they're under a lot of stress. Sound like the pandemic? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, if you look at them, 
there's actually a fair amount of data from several countries on B-complex. B vitamins are very important for our brains. B-complex is not going to get rid of or control bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety disorder. In my opinion, there's absolutely no evidence of that. But for improving your resilience to coping with ongoing stress or the stress of a pandemic, or maybe it's exam time at school, or you've just lost your partner, or broken up with your boyfriend, whatever, B vitamin, just the B complex, which is inexpensive, you can get it in any drugstore, and there's no reason to prefer one brand over another right now. Um, that really does improve resilience. And every single study has found that even in just, just university students going through stress. So, but the lesson from that, we haven't talked about um, food, Vivian, but this is a, a good point to make. This is why we need to improve our food intake, our, our actual dietary intake, and be getting our B vitamins from green, leafy, leafy greens and things like that. Do you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, well, all? that was actually my next question. I was going to ask you to help our listeners with just all the information that we get out there about which diet is good. Is it paleo, vegan, keto? And I think so we just receive info. so much information that it's so hard to know which diet we should be on. And um, you talk if about the diet. If there is a diet. Or there not, is a right? diet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, interested to know what, what you think about, about the diet culture and all the information out there. Oh, I think it's more of people looking for magic bullets, yeah, right? <laughs> like kind of like looking for a single nutrient, which is going to solve all the complex brain pathway issues. Um, so the position we take in the book, I think, is the calmest, wisest one, which is start by eating real food. Now, that might not sound dramatic, but let me tell you that, um, well, if you've read the book, you saw this. This is, to me, the most frightening data that I have seen in the last couple years, when I realized that there was very strong data from government records in both Canada and the U.S. showing that we are choosing, as populations, we have chosen to drop our micronutrient intake by 50%. More than 50%, maybe getting rid of 60% of it in many cases. And that's for all ages all over North America. How have we done that? Because over half of what we are putting in our mouths is ultra-processed foods. And ultra-processed food is not food, really. It is, it's got all those macronutrients. It's got uh, protein, fats, carbohydrates. Uh, it certainly has salt. But if you look at those packages, as, as my co-author Julia likes to mention, you're probably better off eating the cardboard box because there are, and at least then you'd be getting some fiber. Um, and that's no joke because fiber is very important as a prebiotic, you know, for our guts. It's a joke, but it's not a joke. But the micronutrients are gone. They don't, I mean, there are 30 of them, as I said. There is, there, you might see a little bit of iron, you might see a little bit of vitamin C or whatever, but you are not getting micronutrients. So if you are eating ultra-processed, meaning packaged, processed food, 50% um, of the time, you have dropped your micronutrient intake relative to your ancestors by 50%. That is shocking because from the last 70 years, we know that that's the way to create mental illness. The research from the University of Minnesota, in, and this is in the book also from the 1950s, showed very clearly that a drop in, they were doing also caloric drop, but uh, of micronutrients by 50% results in depression, anxiety, inability to concentrate like ADHD, and in some cases, psychosis. So why are we surprised that now 20% of our population is uh, diagnosed with a mental disorder at any given time, which is also shocking because when I was in school, it was less than 1%. It's unbelievable. And yes, I do think food is a very significant factor. It's not the only factor, but I think it's a very significant factor. So back to your question about diet. Stop eating ultra-processed food. I mean, stop now. 
And when you read the book, you'll find that we don't just tell you to do it, but we tell you why. We, and this to me is actually, I think, one of the major contributions of our book. I don't think you get behavior change by just telling people to stop doing this or that or whatever. You need to tell them why. And we explain what the nutrients do in your brain and why your brain is not functioning optimally if you're not getting those. So are we against the paleo diet, the keto diet, the vegan diet? Of course not. But the, the major first step that everyone should do or should take is to eat real food. And that means learning to cook. We promote the Mediterranean style of diet, which I can talk to you about if you like. But that's the very first step. Now, in addition, though, there are some people who are really gluten sensitive, without a doubt, they should experiment with gluten-free diets. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, gluten-free food is highly processed, and so that's a problem. You have to avoid those things. Paleo diet, keto diet, go ahead and experiment all you like. But if people start out by going on one of these exclusionary, restrict I call it a restrictive diet, keto or paleo or whatever. Um, I think when they fail, because then most of them do, they find it boring or too difficult or whatever, they kind of write off the possibility that diet is relevant for them. And so for many, many reasons, I think people really ought to first look at the Mediterranean style diet, and we have a whole chapter with recipes on it. And then if they aren't where they want to be, then Go ahead and experiment with some of these other specialty things. And can you explain to us, if you hear me, can you explain to us a little bit more about what are micronutrients? What they are? Um, unfortunately, if, if I were talking to an agricultural audience, <laughs> they use the terms a little differently. I, I do speak to agricultural people a lot. And so it gets a little confusing, but assuming that that isn't who your audience is, I'll just say that usually people use the term micro to mean very, very small molecules or something. And so a lot of the minerals and vitamins we need in very small amounts, like selenium and molybdenum, molybdenum and um, et cetera. Some of the others of the vitamins and minerals are... Um, they are larger, like we need a lot of calcium. But for ease of use, many of us say a micronutrient means minerals and vitamins. So as I say, roughly 30 of them. It doesn't mean that the essential fatty acids and other things aren't also important. It's just a way to use an umbrella term, okay? Right, and I think tying together the diet and the supplements, it, it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Bonnie, but that we can get some micronutrients or a certain amount from diet. So for example, certain B vitamins from dark leafy greens or animal protein. However, there are some that we have to supplement and therefore take vitamins. Is that correct? Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to. It should all be in our food. Um, but there is a problem these days with the depletion, the nutrient density of our food is decreasing. This is not a reason not to eat whole food, people out there. It's a reason to eat, to make an extra effort to eat whole, real food, true food, not packaged stuff, okay? But it is a reason why some people might find that just eating a whole foods, Mediterranean-style diet um, is not enough for them. And we have a half of chapter on the problem in our soil and the soil microbiome and why that is affecting the nutrient density of our food. Yeah. And I love how you simplify, you know, from all these diets. It's like, no, cut up the ultra processed foods and eat real food. I, I love that simplification. And also your, your chapter on recipes, also very practical for all the listeners out there to take a look at and uh, taking a practical approach for graduate students it's very hard to have time to cook or to find time to cook and a lot of people don't know how to cook and so ultra processed foods is always the easiest a quick option, fix right? yeah. the quick fix so 
uh, Bonnie, if you can explain to us or try to describe mm-hmm. how, how as students we can learn to cook or find time to cook. What are the, what, what's your advice? It's really, it's actually funny, Justin. I usually get asked about the money, but time is, is also a huge issue, time and money. So, um, and, you know, they kind of relate, relate to the major messages of the Mediterranean-type diet. Could I just review what that is for your audience? Okay. So the Mediterranean diet um, is, you know, it, it, if you're in the Mediterranean, it might include wine. If you're, if you're in Australia, they include beer. But, so forget all those things. But, um, and maybe if you're in Quebec, it, I don't know, maybe it also would include wine, which is fine. But there is a kernel of, of uh, central um, guidelines related to a whole foods um, Mediterranean-style diet. And this is what it is. And again, this is in the book. Eat a lot of fruits and vegetables every day. Um, if you eat meat, eat good meat. If you can get relatively lean, healthy meat. If you uh, hopefully eat some fish a couple times a week. Um, if you don't avoid dairy, eat um, good dairy and eggs and cheese. Um, definitely eat whole grains and not white processed flour. Uh, if you are using oil, try to use olive oil. And if you are looking for snacks, think about nuts and seeds instead of cookies and donuts. And then... Um, The central part, which will save you both time and money, I think, is to to learn about lentils and beans and peas and all those dried legumes. Uh, First of all, you can live on dried peas and beans and so forth for about $10 a week. I'm not suggesting that, okay, because you'd get really bored. Um, But the um, you can also buy them in cans, and if you rinse them off before you use them, it's still very inexpensive and it's faster. And then you don't get the the sodium, the salt that's in the cans. But if you really want to save money, it's not that hard um, to use the dried ones. And what you do is you rinse them off and put them in water and soak them overnight. So you're not. Yes, they have to soak overnight, but you're sleeping, so it's not like it's taking any time from you. When you then want to use them, you do, well, lentils, you, can, you don't even have to do that to. You just wash them and, and cook them for a half hour and you're done. But the dried beans, like kidney beans and black beans and all, you do have to cook them for a couple hours. But these days, a lot of us are working at home. It's not hard to do. You just... And we give you the directions in, in the book or you can find them online. So you're saving, if you're at home, you're saving money, you're saving time, and there's an infinite number of recipes. There are, of course, a few in our book, but you can put the words in Google, say, recipe black beans dried or something like that, dried black beans, and you'll have more than 2 million recipes in less than a second. And that's true for all of the the. And people may not know this, but you can make black bean brownies. I made some this past week, and the recipes in Bonnie's book as well. Absolutely. Um, So we were as students, um, we really have to be proactive a little bit more about what we're eating because I think that we're always waiting for the last minute. It's not on our priorities. Right? We have to finish a paper. We have to go to a meeting. We have to go to class, and eating is never on that list, right? Eating and sleeping, I find is, you know, so important, but it's not our, our priority, I find. And I find that if we put it as a priority, if we take the time to prepare food in advance so that when we're hungry, there's something there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's available, that's healthy, that's real, right. as uh, Bonnie described, I think that would be really, really helpful. Yeah. But we have to take that extra time to prepare a little bit you know, to, to be able to. Right. And what I love about your book, Bonnie, is that you have some tips like, you know, cook a large meal and have leftovers in your fridge so that mm-hmm. you don't have to always think about cooking something new, but there are leftovers. Um, would you be able to share some more of those tips? I know you wrote them in your book, but we'd love to hear some more yeah. tips for our listeners. Well, yeah, Justin is reminding me that um, planning is extremely important. You cannot wait until you're hungry to decide what to eat. 
because then you're immediately into eating processed food or going to a restaurant or whatever. You have to think a little bit ahead of time. But the easiest way to do it is to make a big pot of some kind of a stew with lots of beans and barley and lentils and or, you know, greens thrown in at the end and um, and lots of herbs and spices. And there are so many recipes. And if you make a big pot and you don't want to get maybe you get bored eating the same thing every day. So um, freeze half of it in, in small daily um, amounts. I mean, buying some jars or whatever you need. I mean, if there's tomatoes, you know, you don't want to freeze it in plastic. So, so buying a few mason jars or something and freezing it and then having the other half for two, maybe two dinners and a lunch, uh, then you've solved a huge chunk of your eating for that week. It doesn't, it's really not that hard. Everybody who works in community kitchens trying to help people who have very low income um, be able to manage this kind of thing, they do the same thing. They cook and they freeze portions and they also, they cook a lot from dried beans and legumes. And, and this diet that we're talking about, it's not just about or for our mental health, but it's for our general well-being, right? It's for yes. our heart. Absolutely. It's for everything. Uh, and Yeah, Justin, I, I only talk about mental health, but it happens that our brain is the most metabolically active organ. And so even though it only weighs about a kilo, think about how many kilos you you listeners weigh probably 50 or so so it's a very small portion of what we are and yet it uh, it absorbs anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of all the nutrients that we consume so when you eat you're really eating for your brain and the heart is the second most metabolically active organ so um, if you eat in this way you are helping avoid diabetes and heart disease, as well as mental health problems. And if you're a graduate student, you got to care about your brain function, right? right. <laughs> so please take care of your brain health. And I have an interesting uh, question. We were talking with other guests before about what, what is mental illness? Where does it come from? Do you find that it's the, an unbalancement of, of your micronutriment intake or nutriment intake? Yeah. Oh, what, okay, what causes mental illness? This is a brilliant question. We don't ask it often enough. Um, and the stigma, which we all know has been a huge issue for mental illness, comes from the fear of the unknown. So what we are saying is we know that there are certain causes for mental illness, um, stressors, etc. But we know that you build your resilience. It's been known for millennia that our resilience is a function of our nutrition. I mean, look at people who are, have been starved. We, what's the first thing you have to do to make sure they don't catch the typhoid running around or whatever? You have to get them well-nourished. Nutrition is the foundation of mental and physical resilience. It's not the whole story, but it is the foundation so what is the cause of mental illness? Um, we got during the psychopharmacology era, which I think is pretty much closing now. I mean, the drug companies aren't even developing new medications. Um, that doesn't mean that people won't still use them occasionally as a supplement, as I said, and, and some people will have trouble getting off of them, etc. unfortunately. But um, it's not that excited era we went through of saying, oh, there's a chemical imbalance and we need drugs to fix that. That turned out to be a false narrative. It's simply there was never, never any evidence of a chemical imbalance that was being corrected by those drugs. And so I think that that's fallen away. And throughout history, we have known that inadequate nutrition does cause mental illness. It might not be the only thing, and, and it gets really confusing because of individual differences. So I often use myself as an example. I uh, have a lot of illnesses in my family. Everybody does, right? You can look at what you might be genetically predisposed to. 
But they're all physical. I've never heard of any kind of mood problem or anxiety or anything. And I myself have never been depressed or anxious. Um, I don't know what it feels like, thank goodness. I think I could eat junk. Sorry, shouldn't use that word. It's, (laughs) It's judgmental. I think I could eat ultra processed food for a year and I would feel bad. I would get fatter, you know, I'd, I'd get a belly probably, and I'd um, be constipated and have gut problems. But I doubt that I would have depression or anxiety. I just think I get, I don't have an unusual need for micronutrients. But then at the other end of the continuum, we have seen people, Julia and I, um, in our studies, who are eating a really good diet, really good. And yet, when we give them extra micronutrients in pill form, their symptoms improve. Not all of them, but some of them. And so we think that these are people who have an inherited predisposition to need more of micronutrients to make their brain metabolism work. And we explain that in the book. Um, And so back to your question, Justin, about what is the cause of mental illness, we think that... um, Suboptimal nutrition, that's the term we use. It's not um, insufficiency or deficiency because we don't even know how to measure that. I I can't measure how much magnesium your brain needs, Justin, and I can't measure how many B vitamins um, Vivian's brain needs. There's no way to measure the need, how much is needed for the best functioning of your brain. But we think that there is, for every individual, an ideal amount, an optimal amount. And with the broad-spectrum formulas, we're boosting all of them up together in balance. If you get too much, you just pee it out. Um, And so that leads us to think that this inherited need for an unusual amount of the micronutrients is one cause of mental illness. And then you... Add that to the fact that people are choosing to cut their nutrients in half by their bad food choices. And you can see why we would have a lot of mental illness right now. That was kind of a long answer. Did you follow that? Well, it's yeah, a very it's complicated great. question, so it's normal yeah. for it to be, yeah. to be long. But I'm interested in knowing it. For, the, for the patients that you prescribed or you gave the micronutrients, let's say supplements, did you compare them to placebo? Do you think a placebo oh, yes. effect? Oh, yes. We are... have placebo control trials, of course. Right. We have every form of scientific evidence. Um, when I first started out, we did some within-subject crossover design. So you'd have, and Julia has done some of these too, where people with ADHD or bipolar symptoms or, or mood instability, I have to come back and say something about mood instability. Let me make a note. <laughs> um, Uh, We put them on one of the micronutrient formulas. You know, we get a baseline level of problems. We put them on the micronutrient formulas, then watch the symptoms go down. Then we take the formulas away and then watch the symptoms come up and on, off, on, off control. Okay, that's within subject crossover. We have open label case series of of non-randomized groups uh, showing systematic changes in symptoms and then eventually we start doing placebo. Oh, and we also have placebo-controlled trials and also comparators, active comparators. That's very important to show that this formula works better than, for example, B-complex. It was one of our studies where we were shocked to see no difference between broad-spectrum and B-complex, but they weren't a psychiatric sample. That was a general population sample, and that's why I talked about that in terms of B-complex. It was after a crisis, a one-day flood in event, but um, we, we could do a lot more for the general population in crisis by providing B-complex for sure. I wanted to say, um, you haven't asked this question, but we're, we're dancing around it. Um, you asked about placebo-controlled trials. You know, those have been in kids with ADHD, adults with ADHD. Um, oh, there have been some others. Julia did... Uh, I think the insomnia study used the placebo and other designs like um, baseline, delayed, et cetera. It's all in the book. But um, 
the the thing that comes across to us looking at these 35 to 50 studies and open label case series, et cetera, is that there is a category of symptoms which is the most treatable, which cuts across diagnostic categories. You know, we're now well-trained by the psychiatric profession to use DSM categories, and there's good reason to have the categories, but the symptoms don't really um, match up very well. For example, irritability. Irritability is something that you get with depression, you can have it with anxiety, you can have it with a lot of other problems with ADHD, autism, and so forth. Mood instability, mood going up and down. Well, if it's extreme enough, it's bipolar disorder, but you can have a lot of mood instability with ADHD and with, again, with autism, etc. And it is those symptoms of mood, lack of control of mood, of I'm going to say mood instability, and it includes explosive rage that we've published on. Um, Those symptoms respond the best and the most consistently across all of our studies, all our different DSM category uh, categories we, we have evaluated and so forth. And that's worth keeping in mind. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, those are probably an indication of suboptimal nutrition. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. So we wanted to ask you, Bonnie, if there was anything else, any other questions that we haven't asked you that you would like to talk about. Um, I really appreciate that question. We haven't touched on the gut microbiome, which is too big to go into now. Um, We have a bit in our book, and there are a lot of good books out there. But there's maybe one other topic. I mentioned it, but I'd like to elaborate on it. I don't think, um, you know, we wrote this book because the message isn't getting out. We're not looking for fame or fortune. We just want to change the dialogue on mental health. And we, in our, our final chapter, we talk about it's, is it, um, the three steps toward better treatment of mental health and saving money. We have some information in there. But I don't think we get there to our goal unless people understand why. And you don't have to be highly educated to wonder, well, what are minerals and vitamins going to do for me? What, what's going on with them? And so in in chapter two, I think it is, we provide a diagram and explain something that is so elementary. Um, And yet people tell me after lectures, they say, that's the only slide I'm going to remember. (laughs) I try not to get offended at that because I've been talking for an hour. But um, it's great that people think that this is so impactful. And this is what it's about. Every single step of metabolism. Metabolism is a word that some of your listeners might not be comfortable with, so I'll just explain. Metabolism just means the transformation of one chemical into another. So you all know probably that tryptophan has to be converted to have serotonin. Every one of those metabolic steps is enzymatic, so an enzyme makes it happen. But what a lot of people don't know is that enzymes don't work without the proper fuel. They're called cofactors, and those cofactors are almost always minerals and vitamins. And in the the book, we have the diagram of a little tiny, tiny piece of the serotonin pathway. Uh, I actually selected it years ago just because it fit on one slide. And, And for each arrow indicating an enzymatic reaction, we list the vitamins and minerals that we know are required for that step to occur. And I've forgotten now, but I think there are like 12 to 15 just in that one little corner. Not all 30 of the micronutrients, but a large number in one tiny little piece. People tell me that once they understand that, that the micronutrients they're eating today will be the fuel that enables their brain metabolism to work tomorrow and the next day, it influences what they put in their mouths. And so if we want to convince people to eat better, I think we have to educate people in elementary school. And, and by the way, in medical school, too, because doctors routinely tell me they didn't know that minerals and vitamins were cofactors. If they ever learned it, it you know, it's gone past them. 
everyone needs to be educated about what those nutrients do in the brain. And then I think they will want to change. They will want to improve how they eat because it's our brains, folks, you know, <laughs> they're irreplaceable. Yeah, that's a beautiful metaphor. Just, just the fact that you can visualize how those vitamins or micronutrients affect your brain because we can't see what's happening in our bodies, right? So we just imagine that whatever we eat, you know, if we have a boost in energy, we're not hungry anymore, and we could move to the next step of our day. But it's much more complex than that. Every food that we put in our bodies has a specific effect, has a metabo metabolic, metabolic pathway, pathway <laughs> in our brains. And if we understood that, if we, you know, you know, if we understood that, uh, visualize it. I think that, as you said, Bonnie, a lot of people would change what they eat. You yeah. Know? I love how you yeah. end the, the, the book with that chapter in education and how education needs to be that foundation. Um, and I think for our listeners, you know, they are learners, they love to be educated, which is why they're in grad school. And so I think this, this episode will really be a great impetus for us to really get educated on nutrition and what that looks like, even as we're students. And finally, if there are any students out there who are training to be mental health clinicians of any kind, my ultimate goal is that every mental health clinic, when someone is referred, should first be teaching about nutrition, teaching the lessons about what nutrients do, how you should eat, because we know from some population studies that you could cut depression by uh, 33% in 12 weeks, cutting the load on our on our pocketbooks, our I mean our healthcare budget, and cutting the load on mental health clinics, which are so stressed out and so overextended. So we need to get the education right in the mental health clinics, but also in elementary school. To close, I have two other questions, if you don't mind. One, qu no, the first question being, do we have any studies that compared? Um, different populations around the world with how they eat, let's say the Mediter Mediterranean part of the world, and, and compare their mental health with more other populations like in America or somewhere else in Asia. Is there any comparative studies like that? Yes, actually, um, epidemiological research like that has its place. It's only correlational, uh, but it, it often provides clues as to what should be studied. And starting back in the 1960s, there were studies coming out, um, some from uh, Dr. Joseph Hibbelm uh, in the United States and some from some European countries showing that populations that ate more fish had a lower rate of depression. Um, now, jumping from that to saying giving people omega-3s to treat depression is what we did in the Western world, and that didn't come out so well. We spent millions and millions of dollars uh, funding research to study just omega-3 treatment for depression, and it's just a, a marginal benefit. We need to be getting our omega-3s for our brains and our hearts. We all know that. But um, simplifying that didn't lead very far. Uh, there are other epidemiological studies which are longitudinal and prospective. I'll give you one from Canada, which addresses what you raised, Justin. Um, there is a study from Nova Scotia. Actually, it was run by some people also here in Alberta. Um, and they took a look at the levels of uh, sadness and worries of children aged, I'm going to say it was about uh, 9 to 11, I think and asked the question, um, how, what were their eating habits like? They also looked at screen time and exercise. So there were nine health behaviors. And they came back two years later and pulled the government records of who got referred for a mental health problem. And the dietary pattern predicted who would, and you can figure out what it was. I mean, the people, the children who were eating the poorer diet um, had a much higher rate of being referred for mental health problems. So we do have a lot of population-relevant re studies like that around. Interesting. And, uh, and you said you had another one. Yeah. So the second question, it's, it's hard. To, we're talking a lot about nutrition. It's hard not to mention eating disorders. How oh. do you... You know, I... 
I think we should turn off the recording, to be honest. Um, uh, I have very little to say about that. I would say that eating disorders are still a big puzzle. Um, I don't have all the answers yet. I don't see that just nutrient treatment has been helpful. We don't have any systematic studies, but there aren't even any signals from case reports. So, um, yeah, sorry. A mystery I don't have to be solved. Anything intelligent to say. <laughs> Well, Big mystery. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie, for being here with us and for taking the time to share um, your your insight and wisdom. And, There's uh, so much yeah, more for so us much to more say. To talk about. I was just thinking about so many different questions. I think that we should have you back on maybe in season two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm around. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And as we said before, Dr. Kaplan's new book, The Better Brain, is available on the website, thebetterbrainbook.com. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you.